as you are turning there, let me just say that the Lord is glad you're here. If you're one of our guests, we're especially glad you're here, and we hope you will stick around at services. Let us get to know you, and you get to know us just a bit better. Uh, for the reading of the text, will you please, if you are willing and able, stand? Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, hear now the word of the true and living God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you would lead us this morning. That you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can see clearly the good and wonderful things that are contained within your word. And also that we may better understand the world in which we live, the culture in which we find ourselves, so that we can engage our culture and the time and place in which we live with the gospel. We pray this. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue in our series that I'm calling Six Questions to Ask a Skeptic, we come to the fourth question uh, that we want to explore uh, this morning, which is uh, why are children built to believe in God? And of course, these questions are not intended to be gotcha questions that we ask our skeptical friends, but rather they are designed to encourage discussion, non-manipulative dialogue, so that we can consider and, and ponder these questions in, in a sober way. And I know a lot of the times we can get into a conversation with folks and, and we kind of end up on our heels, kind of end up uh, in a defensive position. These questions are designed, again, to engage the culture by asking good questions back. Our skeptical friends, they usually ask good questions of us. Well, here's an opportunity for us to ask good questions back. I'm leaning into the definition offered by George Barna in the research that he did, Seven Faith Tribes. This is a, a book that was published uh, in 2009. And his discovery then, the demographics showed that 11% of folks in America were under the banner of skeptics. They were the non-religious. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of trees have been cut down to address the rising phenomenon of the, the nuns. That is, those who do not believe in, in any god. And, and so we see here, they not only reject Christianity, but it's, it's all gods. Uh, they, uh, they don't believe in Allah. They don't believe in... Uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, any other uh, world religion out there. And this number has steadily climbed throughout the uh, nearly decade and a half since that book was published to where it dances between 20 and 21% uh, in recent years. That is 20 to 21% of the U.S. population uh, is that, uh, say that they're, they, they don't believe in God. They are atheists or agnostics. But of course, as we attempt to engage worldviews, our Christian worldview is more than equipped 
to confront any worldview that we encounter, any unbelieving worldview, not just that of the atheists and agnostics, but uh, even those who believe in another God. Uh, and so, again, the question we want to entertain this morning is, why are children intuitive theists? That's the, that's the phrase that is used in the literature uh, that we're going to explore just briefly this morning. We're going to look at the scientific data for this, uh, which is uh, science is just catching up to what we've known all along based on the revelation of God. That's the way things usually go, is the science is always catching up. Uh, as uh, on occasion, it uh, makes a discovery that is truly in keeping with God's Word. That was, by the way, the original intent of science. Scientists originally uh, were seeking to do good science by thinking God's thoughts after Him. And so, again, we've, we've known this, that children, they have this intuition about them, and what we mean by intuitive here is they are predisposed to theism, theism being a belief in God, that children are predisposed, they are built to believe in God. This is something which theologians have cataloged throughout history. Uh, John Calvin, in his Institute of the Christian Religion, talks about the sensus divinitatis, uh, that's the Latin for sense of the divine. And, and we all have this, this built into us, kind of like a, an antenna, uh, that when working properly, we, we recognize the, the one true and only God. But often what, what ends up happening because of sin, because of the corrupt nature within us due to the fullness of desires, that sense of the divine is askew. Our, our antenna isn't right, right? Back in the day when it was just antenna television, and if that antenna wasn't situated properly, you ended up with static, right? You all move it, right? And then you're messing with tinfoil and all that stuff, trying to get a clear signal. Well, the same thing can happen with our intuitive, our, our predisposition toward believing in God. What ends up happening is because we are religious creatures and we have to serve, we have to worship something, is although everybody has this uh, this, in, this intuitive theism within them, what ends up happening in contexts where people don't have the special revelation of God is, again, it, there's a distorted signal. And while the, the whole creation, we talked about this a few weeks ago, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, the, the general revelation of God in creation is announcing to everyone that there is a creator, that God exists that he's immensely powerful, and that uh, he is a good God for allowing me, a creature of the dust, to live within his world. But without special revelation, that general revelation can only take you so far. It cannot tell you that this one true and only God exists as three persons in one eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if the Father has sent his Son to the world to die for sinners, and then the Father and the Son unite to send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You don't get that by looking at the stars. And so this intuitive theism then gets hijacked by sin and by the fall and by the spiritual forces of darkness and end up with, again, that distorted picture. But there is this religious impulse in everybody. We are built to believe in a God. We have this natural inclination toward 
belief in God. Everyone has it. But again, Paul talks about this. But what ends up happening with this knowledge of God is humans suppress it in unrighteousness. We stifle it. We hold it down. Again, the reality is, is that children are built to believe in God. There are a number of studies that have been conducted. Uh, in fact, uh, let me just briefly run through the data here. Paul Bloom and Dina Skolnick Weisberg published an article in Science Magazine wherein they state, when asked about the origin of animals and people, children spontaneously tend to provide and prefer creationist, creationist explanations. There's also documented research by Deborah Kellerman in an article entitled, Are Children Intuitive Theists? wherein she says, these research findings tentatively suggest that children's explanatory approach may be accurately characterized as intuitive theism. And so that's where that phrase uh, comes from. As one researcher put it, there is now a large body of research suggesting that humans are natural-born creationists. We assume it was created by an intelligent being. Again, this is what, this is what scientists are discovering. This is what the research they're conducting is pointing to, that children are, uh, when they look at things, they assume creation. When they look at the world, they assume creation. For, uh, again, animals and people, where did they come from? Children are intuitive theists. They're predisposed. There's this natural inclination to assume that there's a creator. Now, this finding by these scientists, has been confirmed by even some of their own poets. Uh, and, and these are skeptics, atheists, no doubt much to their chagrin, admit that humans are incurably religious. This is uh, Richard Dawkins. I've cited him before. Here he is looking rather dour. Uh, but he's the, the leading bulldog of atheism these days. In his book, The God Delusion, he put it this way, why, if it is false, does every culture in the world have religion? True or false, religion is ubiquitous. So where does it come from? In other words, it's everywhere. It's universal. Now, I believe we would disagree with Dawkins about uh, religion being false. That is the Christian religion. But he's absolutely right. There is this universal religious impulse that we are incurably religious, humans are, and it's everywhere. Sam Harris is a, another uh, leading atheist. In his book, The Moral Landscape, he wrote, similarly, several experiments suggest that children are predisposed to assume design and intention behind natural events. That's the data we just covered. Leaving many psychologists and anthropologists to believe that children left entirely to their own devices would invent some conception of God. There it is. There's the acknowledgement. We're, we're built this way. It's built, it's programmed. We're predisposed. We're inclined to what this, this scientific research is discovering. And so, here we have 
these researchers, and they're making these discoveries about intuitive theism among children. And then you have these skeptics, these leading atheists who don't believe in God, saying, mm, yeah, there is this research, and religion is ubiquitous. And, and while this is taking place, there are other skeptics, in particular atheists, who are very busy in attempting to explain away the evidence. They want to dismiss the evidence. And so, you, you run across, for example, in his book, The Atheist Universe. Uh, atheist David Mills says, actually, no, children are born atheists. This is essentially the nuh-uh argument uh, from our atheist friends. The research shows that uh, they are actually predisposed to belief in God. And our atheist friend here, David Mills, comes on the scene and says, Nuh-uh, children are atheists. He writes, all children are born atheists. There is no child born with religious belief. Well, okay, yeah, that's true in, in some sense, right? I mean, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, yeah, so... Um, I think it's it's true. Yeah, my sons didn't. They weren't born and and you know came out spouting scripture, right? But what we're talking about is Mills misses the point here. What we're talking about is that predisposition, as if we're pre-programmed toward recognizing there's a creator, belief that he exists, right? Again, what we cannot not know, which is what Paul writes about in, in, again in Romans chapter one. So, again, this, this argument kind of misses the point. All right. right, they're not born with belief, but that, that doesn't explain that intuitive, that predisposition toward these things. Uh, this argument doesn't go far enough. Another challenge is, from our atheistic philosophers is that humans actually, religion is an infection. It's a virus. Religion is a virus. Now, this is uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, who likened religion to a common cold. It's just a virus, a, a social contagion, as it were, that uh, has infected so many people. Fortunately, our atheist philosophers and friends, they have the vaccine for this virus, and uh, they, or, or you know, maybe you know, since we're pre-programmed, as it were, our hard drive has the virus of religion, but they've got the Nortons or the McAfee's, you know, that, that will help eliminate that virus from our hard drive. And all you've got to do is read their writing and you'll be inoculated from this dread virus of religion. Um, this argument, though, cuts both ways. Who's to say, again, if, if the research is showing that it is actually the natural tendency uh, of children and, and therefore uh, adults to have this, this belief, to be, we're built to believe in God, well then who's to say that atheism isn't the virus? And, and that that's the social contagion that they're seeking to spread uh, and, and all that. That knife cuts both ways. And, and by the way, uh, never once do the atheists ever suggest that, by the way, that their ideas are the virus, that they're seeking to spread through their writings. Uh, and through their, can we even call it quasi-evangelism, maybe is the best way to describe it. Uh, so uh, those are a couple of the arguments against uh, this. And it, 
they, they simply uh, do not stand on their own. So, because of the evidence uh, that, that we have seen, even the skeptics must admit that, that humankind has this natural predisposition uh, toward belief in God. Um, and yet all the while, these same atheists are very busy attempting to uh, discount that evidence and ignore that evidence, and all the while, again, holding to their disbelief, that they, they do not believe in God. So what do we do with it? Well, the most satisfying answer for us theists based on the revelation of God in particular, and science is fortunately catching up and recognizing what we've known all along and what God has told us, the most satisfying answer as to why children are intuitive theists is that, well, we are built for this. Our Creator has so built us that, of course, we are going to seek Him out. And so we we turn to Scripture and... We have here Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, uh, and, and I have here the Legacy Standard Bible. That's what the LSB is there. This is basically an updated New American Standard. They have uh, put in where you find the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, uh, as well as some other updates in the New Testament that really accentuate the certain texts that deal with the deity of Christ. But here, uh, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set, also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Here, you have the wise man, Solomon, a bit jaded. I think you see that kind of in the, the latter part of this verse. And yet, the, the wise man, jaded, Solomon, he even acknowledges, God's put this in, or he's put eternity. And what is meant by eternity here? What is it that God, and that's who's under discussion here, that's the he, what is it that God has put in our hearts? When, when, when the wise man talks about eternity, what does he mean? Well, there are, are a couple of ways that this could be understood. Number one, uh, God has put the idea of the infinite or the idea of the eternal within us. That, that left to ourselves, we, we wouldn't even have a concept of the infinite or eternal. God is actually the one who puts that within us. Or, another idea, he... God has put this longing for immortality within us. This is a very good, very good, strong candidate for uh, this idea here, that God has put this longing for immortality within us, uh, and, and again, in the context of Ecclesiastes, you read through Ecclesiastes, and, and the, the big word for the wise man here is vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and he's, he's talking about how life is short and uh, you, you know, you, you do so much in this world and you never see the fruit of it. You're really writing about uh, the fact that we live under a curse and uh, therefore, yeah, you're, you're going to work your whole life and have nothing to show for it. It's not supposed to be that way, but that's the reality. And so, man, I, I want to uh, live longer, but I can't. And, and so everything's futile. Everything's vanity. So, again, a leading contender here that God, He's put this longing for immortality within us. Uh, and, and unfortunately, Solomon here, again, I, I'm, I'm persuaded he's jaded because he's very bitter. Uh, that comes across in the tone of this book. And he's like, even though God's put that in there, 
we can't, we can't find it out. We can't discover this, right? The work of God and all that. Nevertheless, it's still there, that longing for immortality. It could be. One more uh, explanation is that God, He's put this desire for that which is above and beyond ourselves. And, and this, again, another strong contender here. You get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and what is the, the conclusion of the matter? Everything's been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God, keep His commandments, right? That we do crave those commandments that are transcendent. We talked about this a bit last week, that even our skeptical friends crave boundaries. They, they crave a law, and, and they, they demonstrate that the law is actually, the work of the law is written on their heart. They can't get away from it, and their conscience bears witness, either accuses them or excuses them. That, yeah, there, there is something transcendent, this transcendent moral law that says there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong, and they're always right or they're always wrong. And, of course, we recognize that transcendent moral law must come from a transcendent moral law giver. Uh, and that, of course, is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has given us His revelation. But again, everybody has this desire for something above and beyond themselves. Why even our skeptical friends, according to their worldview, cannot give explanation for stuff beyond their skull uh, and, and uh, simply cannot do that. But we, we look far beyond the boundary of the visible and the now. And we have the sneaking suspicion that there is something, there's more to this world than meets the eye. There is this invisible and even eternal realm that is beyond us. And so God, He's put that in us. He's put that in each human person's heart. You come into this world with it. And hence, yes, of course, children then are intuitive theists. They're built to believe in God um, because of what God has built into us what he's put there. We read earlier from Psalm 42. And so not only are we built for eternity, but we're also built with this desire, this longing that can only be satisfied in the one true and only God. Uh, here is Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before Him? There's that, that longing. And in poetic metaphor, the, the psalmist is describing this. It's like the, the deer panting for the streams of water. You come with me to Psalm 63 and verse 1. Psalm 63, verse 1. David here once again affirms this, this longing that is built into us. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You, you hear it again, don't you? The liking of this, uh, the likening of this longing to thirsting for water. And in the same way, we can't live without H2O, the elixir of life, right? So also our souls, we shrink and we, we shrivel up when this longing, this desire is not satisfied. And it's not met, again, in the one true and only God. There is not only this desire for God Himself, 
There's a longing for God's salvation. This is from Psalm 119 and verse uh, 81. Psalm 119, 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. And indeed, it is only through God's word that we can find the salvation, the true salvation for our souls. But notice, longing for salvation, that means, again, there's this sneaking suspicion that we're guilty. Implied, we're, we're, we stand condemned because of sin. We need a Savior. And so, our soul longs for this salvation. Uh, so, we long for God. We long for His salvation. There's this this yearning, this longing of our soul to know its maker, its creator. A desire in the heart. And it's in every person. This desire in every person. Now, what ends up happening again is that desire is suppressed in unrighteousness. Uh, and, and that's where our unbelieving friends are is they suppress that desire, and it goes unsatisfied. It doesn't go away, it's still there, because as someone else has said, there's that God-shaped hole in the hearts of each one of us. Only God is big enough to fill it. It'll be suppressed, it'll be that that God-shaped hole will try to fill it with other stuff. Uh Maybe through self-medication, maybe we'll try and fulfill it with work, maybe we'll try and fulfill it with kids or family, uh, work, career, right? All of these are ways that we try to find some kind of meaning, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of satisfaction for that longing. But again, it is only God who is able to fill that God-sized, that God-shaped hole in each one of our hearts. We're built with this longing, this desire for God. Finally, not only are we built for eternity, God has put eternity in our hearts, not only this longing built into us, but also here's Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and following, really. I've, I've highlighted here the, one of the significant parts of this, but it might do us good just to go over to the text itself and, and look at Acts 17. This, of course, is Paul in Athens, the leading site of philosophy, the seat of philosophy in his day. And as he's in Athens, he's been invited to the premier philosophical school uh, in his time, Mars Hill. In the midst of all of these philosophers, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. See, even the philosopher has this religious impulse. And that's, that's Paul leaning into that. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. You know that God-shaped hole that you're trying to fill with all these other pagan gods and they're not satisfying? Here's the one who can satisfy, the one you don't know, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Number one, we ought to see here Paul's method for addressing the skeptics of his age was not to throw out the firm foundation of God and His Word. I know where we started this morning was with the science. And that may be beneficial if we're approaching this from an evidentialist perspective. That may be beneficial for, for helping even our skeptical friends recognize, hey, even some of your, your skeptical leaders, the atheistic philosophers and all that, even they recognize this stuff. But at some point, you have to lean into the Christian worldview. And that is what Paul does here. Where did he get these ideas about a God who created the universe? He's a Jewish man. He got it from his Bible. Lord of heaven and earth. Where does that come? That, that comes from Scripture. Doesn't dwell in temples made by man or is served by human hands. These, by the way, these are phrases you can, you can, Paul is pulling from the Bible. He is leaning into his scriptures. He's not abandoning it for some kind of moral, neutral ground or anything like that. Such a thing doesn't exist, by the way. Because you better believe that our skeptical friends are not going to abandon their worldview and they're not going to abandon their basic understanding uh, and framework for how they understand the world in order to meet us at the, more, at the neutral ground. That's not the way it works. And in the same way that our skeptical friends are going to lean into their worldview, we got to lean into ours as well. Paul shows us that. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, Paul is, he says, God created us. <laughs> God created us. That's why you're searching for him in all these other things. That's why they have this desire to know their Creator. And they're not, it's not satisfied in any of these other pagan gods. Even that altar to the unknown God. Now verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Ready? Verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. God not only is our Creator and our Maker, Paul goes even further and says that the reason we live in the time and place in which we live is because God put us there. It is God who determined those allotted periods, that's the times, and the boundaries, the dwelling place, where we live. God's done all this. He's put us here, and He's done it so that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward Him and find Him. This is why we live in the time and place in which we live. This is the optimal time and place for us to seek Him out and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. You see, He's not a creator who's far off and aloof as a lot of the pagan gods 
most of the pagan gods were. They were off doing their own thing up in the heavens, and we down here were kind of just like their playthings every now and again. The one true and only God is intimately involved with His creation. And, and now Paul brings to the table some of their own poets, right? For in Him we live, move, and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for indeed, for we are indeed His offspring. You see? Don't you see how your philosophers are recognizing this stuff as well? And, and that's why we can lean into. You know, when, when it comes to presenting these things, okay, maybe you don't have all the articles, you haven't, you haven't dug into and done all the research, you know, and, and you have the quotes and all that. If you do, great, <laughs> right? That's a good thing. But one thing you can do when you're engaged in this particular conversation is to say, well, you, you do realize that even, uh, even atheistic philosophers recognize that humans have been built and, and predisposed to be religious and, and to believe in God, Right? That, that hopefully will cause your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your family member to take a step back and go, hmm, that's interesting. That even some of our own poets, our philosophers, even recognize this. But really, again, we want to lean into the text of Scripture and say, this is why, this is why you, you have this sneaking suspicion that there's more to this world than meets the eye. Because you've been built this way. God has built this into you. And by the way, when we diligently seek Him, He rewards us in that. Hebrews 11, verse 6. He rewards those who diligently seek Him. We've been built by God, created by God, for eternity. We have this longing that's within us. And we've been built to seek after God. Unfortunately, there are so many places in the world, even today, whether it's someone who is born in Africa or the Pacific Rim or over in India, China, somewhere, where they've never seen the inside of a Bible, and yet they still have this built into them. They still have this, this inclination, this sense of the, of the divine, that, that there is a God, He's immensely powerful, and, and I, I owe Him something. Honor and thanksgiving. This is why, by the way, uh, it's good for us to, first of all, in ourselves, have a missionary impulse. We should desire to see our backyard as our mission field. Uh, the, the folks across the street as... as uh, folks who need the gospel as well, but then also to instill within the next generation, my children, uh, your children, your grandchildren, a missionary impulse. I've said it before, I'll continue to say it, nothing would delight my heart more than for my sons to grow up and take the gospel to some foreign mission field and die there with their boots on, sharing the gospel with people who otherwise would, would, would have no knowledge of the gospel. That's a good thing, and we ought to instill that again in the next generation. Because again, we, 
we've seen that the simplest conclusion that is supported by the evidence, and most importantly, is supported by Scripture, is that humans have this inclination, this intuition, that there is a God, that they ought to worship Him, that they owe Him something, and that they ought to worship Him. That a, a child's predisposition to believe in God, that exists, number one, that's real, and it should not be cut off, it needs to be cultivated. It shouldn't be stifled, but it, it should be stimulated. It shouldn't be extinguished, that needs to be encouraged. So that they, like us, would follow hard after God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we acknowledge you as our creator. Indeed, you are the creator of all people. We pray, Father, that we would lean into that good creation. That we would recognize that those who are around us are fellow image bearers. And that the only way that your image within us is renewed and restored is in Christ. While we have talked uh, about the children quite a bit this morning, Father, we do pray for the next generation, uh, uh, the children, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that you would draw them to yourself by your grace, that we would be utilized in sharing the faith and sharing your word with them to point them to the only one who can satisfy a thirsty soul. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.